Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I don't go to the movies a whole lot, but have you ever wondered when the popularity of these Marvel superhero movies is going to fade to black? They just keep coming and coming and coming, with another 20 more already scheduled for release through uh, 2022. Sooner or later, you'd think the writers would run out of ideas, or the public would just run out of interest. Uh, you know, just before that wave begins to decay, though, I'm planning to pitch my idea for an old geezer minister man film. Uh, geezer part wasn't part of my original plan, but I'm not getting any younger. I guess they'll keep making them as long as the films keep making money for the studios that are producing them, and they are. The uh, profits for the Marvel comic universe films alone is already something like $20 billion. Uh, maybe uh, when it finally winds down, uh, they'll come back to westerns for a while. There have always been some version of the superhero film around, though, even as far back as Douglas Fairbanks' 1920 silent version of The Mark of Zorro. Uh, before late 90s, before 2000, uh, there was Batman and, and Superman, the first ones came out, DC comic characters. But interestingly, the, the Marvel comic universe uh, really took off when the company was on the verge of shutting down. In the summer following 9-11, they released the first Spider-Man movie. And of course, we've been inundated with their comic characters on, on screen ever since. I read an interesting article about someone's thoughts on that. He said that before 9-11, we had dreamed of an inclusive, multicultural world. But after 9-11, there was this feeling of us versus them. Our sense of security had been shaken, and, and along with our hope for a world that would embrace in one big uh, group hug, one kumbaya moment, maybe. The world had been broken, though, and people were hungry for superheroes with simpler notions of good and evil, who may bypass the slow process of the law, by doling out swift justice, even if it only happened in the movies. You may or may not agree with that, but it's interesting to consider, isn't it? I promise I'm not going to stand up here this morning and, and uh, turn Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on the mountaintop into a team of biblical superheroes, okay? That's not what the story is about. But while Jesus is set far apart from the others by virtue of his divinity, Moses and, and Elijah were definitely great heroes of the faith to God's people. Now, to really understand the, the impact to Jesus' disciples on what happened in our lesson this morning, you've got to turn their clock back about a week. A great divide had begun to take place, a turning point in Jesus' ministry, when he first began to talk about his death and the birth of the church that would follow. A church not restricted by race or ethnicity, but one that would be open to anyone who would confess Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Now just think for a second about what a radical concept that must have been for Jews who thought of themselves as God's people exclusively. The prophets had said before it was coming, but in their day, in their lifetimes, Jesus could come back this afternoon, right? Right in the middle of the XFL football game. But we really expect it? Most people expect it? Do we live like it? Probably not. Up until now, the disciples had expected Jesus to simply sweep away any opposition and establish a new kingdom. Even the everyday common folks Jesus incarnated in the region of Galilee wanted to take him by force and make him their king. That was after he, he fed thousands of people with a small boy's lunch. But all they seemed to understand were the miracles. They, they really didn't comprehend the, the man himself or his mission. All they saw was a king who could put bread on the table and heal their hurts. 
but that was all they thought they needed. The nation's religious leaders, led by the Pharisees, were out to get him. By this time, Herod Antipas, who had killed John the Baptist, had Jesus on his radar, thinking that he might actually be John the Baptist back from the dead. Jesus had left his mark on Galilee in a big way. Now it was time to begin bringing the Christ, the cross, and the church into focus. Now, a week before, Jesus had led his disciples a good distance from Galilee to a place uh, north of the lake, to Caesarea Philippi, 1,100 feet above sea level in the shadow of Mount Hermon. It was a lush spot surrounded by, uh, really in the middle of three valleys. Nearby were the upper sources of the Jordan River. Now, he brought his disciples to the spot where the river burst out of an immense cavern, a place which in ancient times had been dedicated to the pagan god Pan, and before that, the god Baal. Uh, Pan was the Greek god that had the, the hindquarters and the, and the legs and the, the horns of a goat. Remember, he played the pipes. He was the god of, of nature and fertility. Um, so here they were, away from the scribes, Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the city. Uh, not so far away was, was Herod Philip's castle. Philip had received that tetrarchy, that region, uh, from Caesar Augustus himself. It was in Caesar's honor that the name of Pania originally named in honor of Pan, had been changed to Caesarea Philippi. So well, maybe the split naming honor thing uh, uh, was uh, in part uh, Philip's idea because he ended it with his name, but there's that. Cut into the rock around that cave were, were uh, niches that had held statues of other pagan gods, idols, little idols that graced the spot even before the Greeks had arrived with all their, their gods of mythology. You can still see where they were. And it's in this secluded spot, surrounded by the, the symbolism and the images of false gods, in a region that was still worshiping false gods, that Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the answers were all over the board. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah the prophet, maybe Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Uh, the last couple were, were tied to some Old Testament prophecies. But none of that is the reason this story shows up in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, and in Luke's gospel. It was really a setup for what Jesus really wanted to know. But who do you say that I am? That's a big question in life, isn't it? The right answer can turn a disciple, a student, into an apostle, one sent in Jesus' name. The right answer can bring life out of death. The right answer is just as relevant today as it was back then. It was Peter who stepped up and confessed, You are the Christ the Son of the living God, and Jesus calls him blessed. That confession is still fresh in their minds this morning, but they've moved on. Jesus takes his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, sort of his inner circle, up to the top of a high mountain uh, to pray with them, Luke tells us. Uh, Jesus probably knew what was in store, but uh, the men who were to be his witnesses certainly didn't. While the Lord was praying, it says he was transfigured before them. The word means that there was an actual change to Jesus, not just a new look or that a, a, the sun came out from behind a cloud and reflected off his face. He underwent a whole metamorphosis, and that's the, the Greek word at the root of uh, the transfiguration. Uh, Matthew reports that he shined like the sun, like the sun. It must have hurt their eyes to look at him. So it wasn't, uh, uh, even Jesus' clothes, it says, took on a, uh, a bright appearance, a translucent, translucence of pure light. Um, wasn't just, just parts of him, it was a whole body thing. Back when, in the day when, when Moses had come down the mountain with the second set, the replacement set of the Ten Commandments, remember he threw the first ones down and broke them, 
uh, when he found him worshiping that golden calf. Second time he came down, his face uh, glowed. It was bright with, from his encounter with God. And it scared people, so he had to wear a veil until it finally faded away. But it wasn't anything like this was. You know, what Peter, James, and John were witnessing was way beyond that. They got a glimpse of Jesus, the Lamb of God, as he's described in the book of Revelation. You know, it talks about heaven, and it says that there'll be no need for the sun or the moon in heaven because the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. That's got to be some bright light, right? Bright enough to replace the sun. Won't that be something to see for ourselves? So think way beyond Moses here. John would later write in his gospel, and the word, talking about Jesus, the word of God in the flesh, really, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And Peter wrote today in our lesson, uh, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The disciples got a glimpse of him like he is in heaven today, in all his radiant glory, just like we'll see him with our own eyes someday. Now think about this. Think about that glorious, shining God loving us so much that he put aside that glory to step down from his throne and become one of us in order that he might save us. It's hard to imagine a love so deep to give all that up, isn't it? But that's the kind of love. That's the love God has for you and I. And it's really humbling because, you know, we know we're so undeserving of it. If that wasn't enough to burn the truth of Jesus' deity into their minds, true God, son of the Father, true man, born of Mary by the Holy Spirit, Moses and Elijah suddenly appear with them. But the Bible doesn't really elaborate on why those two, but it makes perfect sense. Moses was the great leader of the Israelites, the bringer of the law, and Elijah was maybe arguably the greatest prophet. Moses was the the faith hero who led millions of God's people out of slavery in Egypt, who had climbed a mountain himself to meet with God, where he received the Ten Commandments. That and about a bazillion other other laws and rituals and things uh, regarding worship and uh, dietary restrictions, uh, how to relate to God and how to relate to each other, live in relationship with God with each other. Um, they had to learn once again what it meant to be the people of God. They'd been away a long time. They'd been enslaved for a long time. They were in Egypt for over 400 years. And how much of that was uh, enslaved part, we don't know, but that was in the middle of a land that worshipped idols, and idols were everywhere. Uh, so they needed to, to learn once again, the, the newest generation, what it meant to be uh, a people of God. And then God was preparing them to, as they entered the promised land, or about to enter it was a journey that wasn't without its troubles, that journey through the wilderness, but eventually they'd establish themselves there and they set themselves up as, as uh, really set apart by God to, to be his people in a land that was surrounded by, by foreign nations who worshipped foreign gods. And the temptation to become part of that and to worship those gods was well, really too much to bear for most of the Israelites. They weren't allowed to intermarry. They weren't allowed to interact with them in a lot of ways just for that reason. But by the time of the prophet Elijah came along some 600 years later uh, with God's word, there were only 7,000 Israelites out of maybe 2 or 3 million who started way back when um, who hadn't turned away from the true God to, to worship idols, who had not kissed Baal is the way God says it. So Elijah came along, he had his work cut out for him, but the Bible says that God rewarded him for that work by taking him up to heaven without first having to die. Remember the chariot and horses of fire and things. They didn't experience death. Now, here they both were, representing the law 
and the prophets, truly heroes of the faith, talking with Jesus about his final journey into Jerusalem and surely the terrible death awaiting him there. Jesus was the, fulfill- the, the, the fulfillment of everything that they, those two represented, everything the law pointed to and the prophecies of salvation foreshadowed, everything that represented the old covenant that God's people had failed so miserably at keeping and God's long-promised Savior. And that's kind of sad, isn't it, that even today, some that part isn't sad, it's a good part. Today it's sad that some people only see Moses and Elijah. They sort of stumble along through life, almost bent over with the, the weight of the, the law's accusations, right? God could never love you. He'll never forgive you for that. He might let that one go, but that one, no, you're never going to please God. That's what Satan does. You know, they read the Bible and, and they see nothing but law, nothing but duty, nothing but a set of rules and regulations they can't manage to keep. And so they see life as having just one purpose, to make God happy or else. Right? It's just one measuring stick after another. Have I pleased God enough today? Probably not. Others go through life with their eyes glued to the prophecies. Some of them recognize that the Christ has come, but now they're stuck in Daniel and Revelation trying to figure out when he'll come again. And still others are looking ahead, waiting futilely for the promised Messiah who's already come, who was the perfect fulfillment of all those prophecies and who kept the law perfectly for them who's standing right in front of them with his arms out, waiting to receive them if they'll just look up, open their hearts, and see the truth of it. Now, where's the happiness, the confidence God wants us to have in that? They don't hear the witness of the gospel this morning. They've been fooled. Some, I don't know, 70 years or so ago now, as the story goes, a man was in Los Angeles was tried for murder. It was one of those difficult cases that involved a lot of circumstantial evidence. Uh, we've heard a lot of trial news lately ourselves, haven't we? Well, in spite of the odds, uh, the man's defense lawyer made what uh, might have really been a brilliant move in the Johnny Cochran sense. Remember the OJ trial? He appeared to be approaching his summary, wrapping up his case. And when he said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you must find my client not guilty of murder. If there's even the slightest doubt in your minds, you must not chance convicting an innocent man. And then to everyone's surprise, he, he announced, I have one final witness. The true murderer is, is about to walk through that door. And of course, all eyes swung toward the door, but nothing happened. No one came in. The lawyer continued, you see, ladies and gentlemen, there is doubt in your minds. Otherwise, you wouldn't have looked toward the door. Well, the jury retired to deliberate and returned five hours later with a guilty verdict. The attorney was beside himself, and before the judge could even say anything, he jumped up and he said, but I proved that you had doubt about my client's guilt. How could you possibly find him guilty? And an old man in the jury box stood up, and he said, as everyone looked toward the door, I was watching your client. His eyes never turned toward the door. He didn't look because he knew no one was coming through it. He knew because he is the guilty one. Now, people get fooled by Satan every day. Some of them he tricks into looking only at the law. Others he convinces to focus only on the prophecies, and they do. But they're all forgetting about a star witness who did show up that day on the mountaintop. And this witness pretty much wrapped up the case about whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. While Peter was babbling about building shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus so they could kind of hang out, something else miraculous happens. A bright cloud overshadows him. Not a dark cloud, not a rain cloud, a bright, shining cloud. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's like a Jesus baptism, right? But then he adds, Listen to him. I don't know if he said sarcastic like that or not. It was the voice of God the Father. And the disciples fell on their faces with fear. There was no talk about building a fourth shelter because there was no more talking at all until Jesus came over to them, touched them, and told them to get up. And when they did, everything was just as it had been before this miraculous event. Everything that is, of course, except the disciples themselves. Now, they knew what they'd seen. They knew, and they knew once and for all, and would later witness to it after Jesus, after Easter, just like Jesus asked, that he was surely more than just a prophet, more than a teacher, more than just a rabbi. He was the son of man. He was human like us, but he was also the son of God. That's why this lesson wraps up the season of Epiphany, lessons that reveal Jesus as true God and true man. Because as we move into Lent this coming week, um, as Jesus and his disciples begin their final journey to Jerusalem and the cross, it all means nothing if Jesus was just a man like us. You know, any man or woman might die for their own sins to pay that price. But only a sinless man who was also God could suffer and die for the sins of the whole world. So through the eyes of eyewitnesses this morning, we get a glimpse of his glory. A glory that shined like the sun. A glory that's really too often untapped power for living through sins forgiven. And that new rebirth we have, that new life we have in Christ. A glory that's ours to behold through faith and the witness of his disciples today. But one will see with our own eyes one day in heaven. Now, Jesus didn't stay on the mountaintop that day. From the glory of the heights, he led his disciples back down into the humanness of, of valley living. He had an appointment with a cross in Jerusalem. Now, the super thing about our risen and crucified and risen Lord is that he's always there for those who seek him. Even if it's in the valleys or the trenches of your own life, he's been there. He's even been through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows the highs and the lows of living in a fallen world. And he promises to be there for you in all your ways, whether it's to, to help you celebrate the highs or to, to support and lift you up in the lows. It's with you in all your ways. I hope that's not an epiphany for most of you, but it sure is good news. Thanks be to God. Amen.